Well, I'm so excited to be here today. I'm excited about the Titus 2 women's ministry. I'm excited for us to take a look at the law of God and see what it means for us as believers on the other side of Christ. And so as you stand, let me read Jesus' words from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now we'll stop and have a seat. And as you have a seat, let me, uh, let me just uh, wish you a happy new year. I hope that your new year has been good so far. I hope that things are off to a great start. In fact, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the New Year's Eve for the Freeman family. We, uh, you know, we are at this stage in life where our kids, are, they're, old, they're getting older, they're teen and preteen. And so they want to do this crazy thing. They want to stay up till midnight on New Year's Eve. That's just, that's crazy, right? No, but they want to do it, and so we humor them, and so uh, we stayed up. We played some games, you know, and watched some shows. Our youngest, he's six. He made it till about, uh, you know, 1030, and then he just, you know, couldn't even keep his eyes open anymore. But, but the rest of us, we stayed up, and, you know, it's Longview, and so at midnight and New Year's Eve in Longview, what do people do? They blow stuff up, right? And so our neighbors, our neighbors, they came out and they just started blowing up stuff and it was awesome. I mean, it's like a, it's like a free fireworks show. You just kind of go out and watch everyone do this and it's really fun. And, and you know, it's kind of like as a neighborhood, we all just say, hey, we're going to show each other that we love one another by blowing stuff up, right? That's, that's kind of the feel, right? And so they all do this for, you know, until about 1 a.m. But, but then, you know, we, we had some neighbors that felt left out. We had some neighbors that, you know, they, they get up early and so they go to bed early, and, and, you know, they felt left out, and because everyone was up saying, I love you so loudly at like 12, 1230, you know what some of our neighbors did? They wanted to say, I love you in return. And so they got up at like 5, 530, and they got their fireworks out, and so at like 5, 530 a.m., they start saying, I love you to everyone else by blowing up stuff, right? There's just so much love in our neighborhood. But the reality is I don't think anyone was thinking how much they love one another. In fact, I think those people that go to bed early, they weren't feeling very much love toward the people that were staying up late. And I think that those people who got up early, uh, they weren't showing very much love to those who had just fallen asleep and maybe were hitting the REM mode of their sleep stage, right? Like, isn't it interesting how, how regularly we, we just kind of go through life Doing the things that we think are fun or that are right or good, but very, very rarely, maybe it's more often for you, do we slow down, do we stop, and do we think in terms of how loving is this to others? And, and how loving is this to God? You see, today, as we continue in our series on the law of God, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we, we made the, the, just the, built the foundation saying that the law of God, it points us to the gospel. The law of God shows us that we have failed, that we have sinned, that you and I, we are sinners, and we do not meet up to God's standard. Yet, Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. He obeyed all the laws. He fulfilled the laws. And if you trust that he died for you and was buried for you and resurrected for you, you have new life. And so you're now no longer under the law, but under grace. We talked last week, we said the law points you to the gospel. But this week, this week we're going to answer, answer the question, okay, so what do I do with the law now? Is the law not applied to me at all? Do I just kind of ignore the Old Testament? Do I just kind of ignore the Ten Commandments? And what we're going to see today is that the law of God 
it leads you in love. Not only does it point you to the gospel, which we need desperately, but it actually leads us in love. And we're going to do this by looking at John chapter 13. If you want to turn there, we're only going to look at a few verses there, and we'll, we'll uh, support it with a few other passages as well. But, but here's what I want us to see. Jesus is speaking in John 13. And Jesus is going to talk about something he calls a new commandment. We're going to see, though, this is not a new commandment. This is, this is really a deepening of an old commandment. This is really a fulfilling and a filling out and a refocusing and a reframing of what God's already revealed. And so let's begin. Let's begin and let's see that this new law, this new law reframes the moral law as love. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, there's places in the Old Testament Scripture where there's a command to love. This is not new in the sense that, oh my goodness, this is brand new. I've never heard it before. Jesus, how did you come up with this? No, 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 this is not new in that sense. This is, this is actually, the, it's a deepening, a refreshing of the old law. You see, the old law, the old law demanded love. You must do this or else. But the new law is, the old law has been fulfilled, and so now the new law is, now you do this because you've been given life. The, the old law demanded love. The new law deepens love. It's kind of like uh, the second car I ever owned. I, it, when I was younger, going to college, I, I had a 79 Chevy Blazer, my favorite car I ever had. And at one point, gas got too expensive. And my boss at Albertsons at that point, he sold me his, his Ford Probe. It was just this little two-door car. But I bought it, first of all, not knowing that it was a manual. Second of all, not knowing how to drive a manual. That's another story for another day. But the third thing I did not know about it is it had a turbo boost. You know, the day that I learned how that thing worked was a fun day. <laughs> the day that I learned how that thing worked was a dangerous day. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, let me show you something about the law of God that you might not have realized. Oh, it does that? This is what Jesus is doing with the law of God. You see, Jesus has already acknowledged the place of the Ten Commandments. Jesus does not, he does not get rid of the law. In fact, he fulfills it. He speaks about this in, in Matthew 5. But, but he's already acknowledged the importance of the Ten Commandments. Look with me in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. In this passage, you have, you have some religious leaders of the day. These are people that were threatened by Jesus. They didn't like his popularity. They didn't like his teaching. They didn't like that the crowds followed him. They didn't like that he called them out for their hypocrisy. And so one of these people, look at this, verse 35, it says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, to put him in a corner, to, to, to get one up on him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus, without missing a beat, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Here's what Jesus is doing. Now, Jesus is asked this question, and Jesus doesn't stumble. He doesn't trip up. Jesus, he, he gives the perfect answer. And this perfect answer, it, it aligns with what we talked about last week. 
If you were here last week, we talked about there's, there's three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Do you remember? Test time. Uh, I took a few guys, my, my son and his friend came home with me last week, and I quizzed them the entire way home until they could remember these. But we talked about how there's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is the religious aspect of the law for the Israelites. There's the judicial law. That's like the civil or national law for the Israelites living as a nation under God's authority. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. The civil or judicial law, it's now applied in principle, but not one for one. But then there was the the key one, the moral law. The moral law refers to the Ten Commandments, the unchanging law of God which reveals who God is. And Jesus, in this, in this answer to this question, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus, he affirms the moral law. He actually simplifies it and summarizes it. Here's what he does. He, he reframes the moral law and he does it with the word love. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says, this, this is the first, not a first. This is the first. This is the greatest commandment. But do you realize what he's doing? Is he's actually taking what's called the first table of the Ten Commandments, and he's summarizing it. The Ten Commandments sometimes are talked about in different ways. They're called the Decalogue, they're called the Ten Words, and they're also called the Two Tables. The Table 1 is all of the commandments that refer to your relationship with God. This is the first four commands. And he summarizes them. What are these first four commands? To love God is what he says. Exodus 20, verses 3 and so on. Command number one, you you shall have no other gods before me. The second command is you shall not have any carved images. The third command is that you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth command is that you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. All of these have to do with mankind and how they relate to God. And Jesus says, this is how, this is the greatest commandment. Take those four, hold them all tightly together. And what you have is you you have love for God. The first table is to love God. But, but then Jesus adds on to this person's question, and he adds on by summarizing what's called the second table. If the first table is how we love God, the second table is to, to love your neighbor. Look at these commands. They, they all have to do with your relationship with other people. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie, and you shall not covet. Each one of these Each one of these has a relational aspect, and Jesus summarizes it by saying, here's the greatest and the second greatest commandment, to love your God and to love your neighbor. Jesus says, "This this is the best way to live. You know, let's be honest for a second. Sometimes we get a little nervous about the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we get a little nervous when we start talking about law, especially in church, because you know what? We're people of grace. We're people who who have experienced the grace of God, and so when we start talking about law, sometimes our spidey senses start going off. Is this going to be legalistic? Are they going to start forcing me to do things? In fact, I had someone come up to me last night and say, hey, my friends are a little bit worried that you're preaching on this because they think you're going to be legalistic about this. Listen, the law of God is not meant to be this prohibitive, overbearing, drag, killjoy burden. The law of God, according to Jesus, it leads you in love. 
Now go back to my days at Albertsons. The, the one year I got uh, hired into the produce department. It was an exciting promotion. I was going to make more money. I, I wanted to do a really good job. And I remember reporting for duty and, and going in there. And, you know, the way it works in a grocery store is grocery stores are busy. You don't have very many hours, and you have to accomplish a lot. And so training doesn't really happen. <laughs> and so I remember going up to this guy that hired me, and, and he, uh, you know, he basically he gave me a walk through the department on my first day, and then took me to the back room and gave me a list of tasks that I needed to do that night. And he said, hey, I've already been here like 10 hours. I'm leaving. And so I look at this list, and it could have been written in a different language than some of it, right? And so I start muddling my way through the night, and I'm doing everything completely wrong and not doing the right things and doing the wrong things. And, you know, I, I leave there, and I, I think I even worked, like, overtime because I was so nervous I wanted to do it right. And I came in the next day, and he says, Mike, come here. And he walked into the cooler. That, that's always a bad sign, by the way, in, in, in produce because they can't hear you yell when you're in the cooler. <laughs> and, and he laid out for me all the things I did wrong. And then he gave me my new list for the day, and he says, okay, I got to leave. And this was basically my first month in the produce department. Failure, confusion. Was I a bad worker? Maybe. I wanted to be a good worker. I wanted to please him. I wanted to do a good job. I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to succeed. Aren't you glad that God's not like that? You realize what God has done for us in the Ten Commandments, in, in these ten words, in these two tables. God has said, you want to love me? Let me show you how. You want to love other people? Let me show you how. This new law, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The new law reframes the moral law as love. But Jesus continues in verse 34. And we see that the new law doesn't just reframe the moral law. It refocuses it. It refocuses the moral law, not just as love, but as Christ-like love. Look at the rest of verse 34. He says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He says, In the same way that I have loved you, I want you to love each other. Now, the timing of this is, is very, very important. Because earlier in John chapter 13, you, you want to know what Jesus does? Jesus, who is, who is the king Jesus, who's Messiah, Jesus, who has existed for all time, Jesus is the one who deserves all praise and all glory, Jesus is the one that deserves all service. You know what he does in the beginning of John 13? He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. Now we think, oh, I don't want to wash someone's feet, but listen, he wasn't unlacing someone's Nikes and pulling off some pair of socks that are a month old and cleaning some feet that were already clean. His disciples' feet, they, they, were, they were travelers who walked from city to city, not on paved roads of concrete and manicured lawns, no, on dust and dirt and through animal dung and all of the mess. You have Jesus, the king of the world, down on his knees, cleaning the feet of his disciples, and then he says, a new command I give you, that you love one another in the same exact way I have loved you. See, see, love is not an abstract idea. Love is not an abstract idea where, hey, you decide your definition of love, 
And then you decide your definition of love, and, and they might not be anywhere near each other, but you know, you got to do, no, 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 love is not an abstract idea. It is a concrete picture seen in flesh and bones in Jesus Christ, in his person and in his work. When we look at Christ, we see the display of love that fulfills the love of God and the love of neighbor. In fact, one of, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, he's one of these men that had their feet washed by Jesus. In fact, when Jesus says he's going to wash their feet, Peter protests. He's like, nope, you're not doing it. You don't get to do this, right? And yet Jesus, he convinces him. Peter is actually the same guy that wrote the first and second letter of Peter. In, in Peter's letters, Peter actually describes the, who Christ is and the kind, of, the kind of love that Christ showed. I want to show you something in some of Peter's writings. If you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start in, start in verse 20, and then we're going to back up to verse 18. But listen, listen to Peter writing about Jesus and about us. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps, so that you might love the way that he has loved. Now, let's back up to verse 18. And this is actually, contextually, this is talking about how a servant relates to a master. It's actually the idea of a slave to a slave owner in that day. Don't, don't think slavery in America's history. This is more of like a business agreement that would last for a, a agreed upon period of time. But, but then it, it ends up being applied, not just to servant and master, but it ends up being applied to all believers by the time we get to verse 21. And really what we do here in verses 18 through 21 is we, we ask the question, what does Christ-like love look like? And Peter answers it. What does Christ-like love look like? Well, first of all, Christ-like love willingly serves. Christ-like love willingly serves. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to good, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He starts by saying, you know what? Christ-like love willingly serves. But for us, this means we willingly serve not just the people that are nice to us, not just our friends and family, not, not just even to people who, who we would consider good or morally upright. We willingly serve not just to the just, but to the unjust. I know what it's like to, you know, take care of the little old lady that lives next to you, and you, you go mow her lawn, or you take care of her garbage, or whatever it is, and you know what? Within 24 hours, she's going to be delivering you some fresh-baked you know, like chocolate chip cookies, right? It's like, oh, it's really hard to serve here. You know, like, that's not the kind of service he's talking about. He's talking about serving in your workplace. If you have a, a boss that's just terribly selfish or incompetent. He's talking about serving in your, your family life. If you have family or extended family that you would want to, you know, identify, oh, they're just toxic, right? Well, to even serve them. This is Christ-like love where you willingly lower yourself, where you willingly look out for the needs of other people, where you wash dirty feet, right? Christ-like love willingly serves, but, but the passage continues. Not only does Christ-like love willingly serve, Christ-like love willingly suffers. Look at this. Verse 19. For this is 
a gracious thing. This is a beautiful thing. This is a gift on display is the idea here. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, hold, hold on to those three words, mindful of God, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this, but it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says, you know, you shouldn't pat yourself on the back if you act like a bonehead and you get in trouble and you face the consequences for your actions, right? We've all been there. You don't, don't, don't pat yourself on the back if you've been foolish and done wrong and you face the consequences. But if you are doing what is right and you are doing what is good and you are suffering because of it, he says, this is a gracious thing. But, but this only happens if you're mindful of God. If you're only mindful of yourself, it's impossible to suffer well. If you're only thinking about your suffering, it is impossible to suffer well. If you are only thinking about the injustice that you see in this world or that you're experiencing, it is impossible to suffer well. But he says, mindful of God, if you remember that God is bigger than you, God is bigger than your suffering, and God is bigger than the injustice that you experience, then you can suffer, and it is a, a gracious thing. It is a gift of God on display for the watching world. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute, and I want you to think about this in light of our political landscape today. Now, I, I'm not a uh, trying to get up on a like a pulpit and, and talk politics. That's not really my goal. You guys know that. And, and I'm not a prophet that can foretell the future with, with perfect accuracy. I'm not claiming that. But, but here's the reality. We live in a tense political world. And, and a lot of that tension is, is pushing against you as a believer in Christ. And the, the easiest thing for us to do over and over again is to, to cling to our rights, maybe even instead of doing what is right. And, and I want us to remember for a moment that, that we're part of a different kingdom. We're part of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven sometimes is called the upside-down kingdom because it doesn't always make the kind of sense that we want it to make. Because the kingdom of heaven calls us to be willing to show Christ-like love through suffering. And it seems there might be suffering on the horizon. There might be suffering on the horizon for you if you call in the name of Christ and your employer finds out. There might be suffering for you on the horizon if you hold to biblical ethics and your friends find out. Who knows what the future might hold? But, but, but this is a call to be prepared, to be willing to suffer. Now, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean you just go seek after suffering. 
This doesn't mean that you, you put your family in harm's way to suffer. This doesn't even mean that you don't defend those who are, need help around you and those who are close to you, but it means that you do it mindful of God, led by the Holy Spirit, thinking more about the kingdom of God than about any kind of political virtue. Christ-like love willingly suffers. And ultimately, Christ-like love willingly sacrifices. Continue with me to verse 21. It says, for, for to you, or excuse me, for to this you have been called. This is your calling. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. You think about this. He, he connects your suffering today with the reality that Christ suffered for you. Now, Christ's suffering it was not, oh, I've got to deal with these Pharisees and the way they attack me, and it's so frustrating. Christ's suffering was not, oh, man, these disciples, I keep teaching them, and they just don't get it. And it's like, when is it going to get through their mind? No, Christ's suffering was for you and for me. His suffering on that cross when he was bleeding and dying, he was, he was sacrificing paying the price for my sin and for yours. And, and it says in, in 1 Peter 2, 21, it says, for to this you have been called. This is love. Love willingly serves. It willingly suffers. It even willingly sacrifices. No greater love is there that a man would lay down his life for his friend. You see, Christ-like love is our example. The end of verse 21 says that Christ was leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Are these the steps you're following in? If, if you've got, if you've got the, the, the path of Jesus, like he went and stepped in a bunch of paint, and he's walking before you, and, and it's a path of serving others, and it's a path of suffering, and it's a path of self-sacrifice. Are, are you walking along that path, or are you looking at that and saying, yeah, I think I'm going to go this way. I think I'm going to do my thing. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Love is not an abstract, philosophical, choose-your-own-adventure idea. But love is it's pictured concretely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is he's taking the law of God, and he's refocusing us on it, and he's reframing it. He reframes it as love, and then he refocuses us on, on not just love, but Christ-like love. And then, and then finally we see that this new law, it establishes the moral law as a certain kind of life, as, as, as gospel living. I want to I want to read verse 35 for you, and then I want to connect the dots between the gospel and the law, and I want us to see how intertwined they are. Verse 35 says this, but the, <clears throat> by this, by, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You, you see, disciples are, are Christ followers. And, and we are to be known for one characteristic above all of the rest. This is actually called the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian is it's love. In fact, it's love for one another. 
Let's do that awkward thing we do once in a while. Just take a minute and look around this room. Try, try not to stare too long into someone's eyes. That gets really awkward, right? But just, just glance around. Look at, look at the people in this room. Jesus says, the way you love each other, the way you love other Christians, other disciples, that is how the world outside knows that you follow me. This is the primary mark of a Christian. It's not compassion for the poor. It's not a bad thing. It's not zealous pursuit of doctrinal and theological truth. That is an important thing. We should do that. But the primary mark of you as a disciple of Christ is the way you love other believers. See, a disciple, and this, and if I'm going to define it in this context, a disciple is someone who's redeemed by the gospel of Christ, and they're growing in Christ-like living. They've been saved because they've trusted in Jesus as the law fulfiller. They've been saved because they've trusted in Jesus as their sacrifice. They've been saved because they've trusted in Jesus as the resurrection and the life, the one who died and rose again and who did that for you. They are redeemed by the gospel, and they are, they are growing in Christ-like living. And the way they do this is by loving, and loving according to the law. I got one more passage I want to, I want to draw our attention to, and this passage is going to show us the gospel, and it's going to show us the law and how they align. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, and we're going to connect this to love in just a moment, but, but Paul here is writing to another pastor, a younger pastor, and, and he's going he's to handle the law for Christians, and he's going to handle the gospel. Look, look at this, verse 8, he says, now we know that the law is good. The law of God's not a bad thing, it's good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Now, he starts by talking about the law. He says the law is good if you use it justly. And then he says this is who the law is for. And then he gives us a pretty big list. And then he ends with talking about the gospel. Let's start here. I want us to see that the law aligns with the gospel. Law and gospel are not contrary. Law and gospel are not at war. Law and gospel are not enemies. Law and gospel, they align perfectly. Let me show you this. Verse 8. Let's begin, and then let's skip over these, this list, and then let's land where the gospel lands. It says, now, verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the, un, or for the just, but for... Here's where he gives us that list. But look where he concludes it. Verse 10. But for whatever is contrary to sound doctrine, and then how does he define sound doctrine? In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. He says the law is laid down for everyone and anything that does not live in accordance with the gospel. The law and the gospel perfectly aligned. 
God's grace to you doesn't mean that you throw the law away. Jesus' death and resurrection in saving you doesn't mean you say, okay, well, I don't need the Old Testament, and I don't need the Ten Commandments, and I don't need any of that moral stuff. No, no, it actually, it deepens and it strengthens it. It, it, it shows us that it's actually how we live to love God, the first table, and to love our neighbor, the second table. You see, the law and the gospel, they guide a disciple, first of all, in their love for God. And, and then Paul lists out all the ways that we break the law by showing God that we don't love him. See, breaking the first table or the first four commandments, it's actually you just saying, God, I don't love you. Breaking the first table is unloving toward God. Look at verse uh, 9. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, the, the righteous person, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. He's saying the law is for all of these folks who don't love God. And then he gives us this list. But I want you to notice something. This, this list, it, it lines up. It lines up rather well with the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, is to have no other God besides God. And then Paul right here, he talks about the lawless and the disobedient. The lawless person is the person that ignores the law of God. They ignore, to begin, the first commandment. They're disobedient to God's law. The second law is the, the opposite, or is to have no carved images. Paul describes this person as ungodly, ungodly and a sinner. To be ungodly, by definition, ungodliness is leaving God out. Here's what an ungodly person does. They go up to God, metaphorically speaking, they pick him up, they set him over here, and then they go and they sit upon the throne of God and they put themselves in the place of God. And this is, in the sense, this is placing an image where God goes. What is the image they place there? It's the same image you see when you look in the mirror. They are replacing God with himself, a creation instead of the creator. The, the fourth commandment is to, to keep the Sabbath holy. The next word Paul uses here is unholy. The third commandment is, is to not take the Lord's name in vain, not profane the Lord's name. The next word that Paul uses here is the word profane. Paul here, he's saying the law is for those who break the law. The law is for those who don't love the Lord, our God. But not only that, the law and gospel, they don't just guide a disciple in their love of God. They guide a disciple in their love of neighbor. The next thing Paul shows here is that breaking the second table, all of these commands about love of neighbor, it's, it's, it's unloving toward your neighbor. Here's what he does. He says, uh, the, the next commandment, the fifth commandment, is to honor your father and mother. What are the next words out of Paul's mouth? For those who strike their fathers and mothers. Last time I checked, that's not very honoring. And in fact, that's not very loving. The, the sixth commandment is do not murder. The next two words Paul uses here is for murderers. The, the, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. He's saying that those who live outside of God's bounds for a sexual ethic, they're not loving other people. The next commandment is do not steal. The next word Paul uses is enslavers. And you're saying, that's not stealing. Yes, it is. 
To be a man-stealer was the primary form of, of thievery. It was the worst form of thievery to take someone and steal them and force them into labor. This is the, the idea of thievery at its greatest level, to steal someone's freedom. The ninth commandment is do not lie. His next words are liars and perjurers. And the final commandment is do not covet. And his final words are whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Here's what Paul does. He says those who live outside of the law live outside of love. Those who live inside of the gospel love God and love their neighbor. The law of God, you know what it does? It leads you in love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. The law of God, we talked about it last week. It does the first thing, it points you to the gospel. But once you trust in Jesus, the law of God is not something you throw away. It's something you cherish because it shows you how to love. I mean, imagine Imagine I take you in a helicopter, and we go out into the wilderness hundreds of miles from civilization, right? And I, uh, I, I drop you out of the helicopter right in the middle of, of nowhere. And I say, okay, good luck finding your way back to civilization. Now I know some of you. You guys are like, that sounds like a great vacation, right? Like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it, right? I, I get that. But what if I did that, and I said, oh, by the way, there are thousands of traps and pits and booby traps and assassins lying in wait, and, and it is impossible to escape unmaimed or alive. My son, after I said this in the last service, he said, Dad, that still sounds kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, you would fail. You would fail. But what if I did the same exact thing? I took you and I dropped you off in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by, by the greatest dangers you can imagine. But right before I left, I said, oh, and here's a map that gives in, in specific detail where every danger is. That would change the game, wouldn't it? Even the, 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 the least rugged in the room might say, oh, I might have a shot here. This is what God has done with his law, church. God has given us the law saying, you want to love me. I've given you a heart that wants to love me. I've saved you, but let me show you how to love me. Let me show you where all the pitfalls are that will ruin your life and that will ruin others. Let me show you all the things that you can do that will show other people that you don't love them and that you actually hate them. And most importantly, let me show you how to love me because you are thankful that my son died to save you. Isn't the law of God amazing? Isn't it a gift? See, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the law of God leads you in love. Heavenly Father, we, in moments like this, kind of have to pick our jaw off the ground and realize how good you are. God, I pray for us as a church. I pray for those in this room and those online. I pray for our hardness of heart where we resist your ways, where we want to look at your law as something that is antiquated and old-fashioned, as something that is ancient and not relevant. God, we repent and we confess that sin. 
And instead, Lord, we see that you really, in your love for us, have given us a map on how to live lives of love for you because of everything you've done for us. You've shown us how to live lives of love for others. Lord, this is, this is who we want to be, and so we pray that you would, you would awaken our minds to the places where we are unloving, both to you and to neighbor. Father, I pray you would soften our hearts to the places we are, uh, where we're bitter or angry, places where our heart is hard and has hatred. And instead, Lord, I pray that you would give us this Christ-like love. You would give us this, this joy in serving, in suffering even, even in sacrificing to show those around us that, that we love them and ultimately, Lord, to show those around us that you love them. And we pray this all in the great name of Jesus. Amen.